297, Chapter 29 of Jane Eyre. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 297, Defarge Dieu. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Well, hello from sunny Virginia. It has been uh, sunshiny and threatening to be warm without actually being warm. So it's been really pleasant. Pleasant enough that I went out and played basketball with my family. If you know me, as many of you do, uh, you probably haven't heard those words cross my lips, leave my mouth and enter your ears ever before. But we have a basketball hoop just down the hill, and I thought, ah, maybe maybe that's what we can do. And, uh, and it was great, and the boys had a great time, and we had a nice spring break, everybody's back at school, and this week I am releasing uh, volume two of the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, so I'm a bit crazed, and I can't say that I'm all that unhappy about this week's chapter being both easy and not terribly long. But before I get to that, a couple of crafty bits for you. I found a link, which I tweeted, so some of you may have already seen it, to made-to-order Regency dresses. Uh-huh, I know. How cool is that? The second thing is our own Penny from Pennywise Consultants and Little Acorn Creations has released a cute little pattern of little mousy butts. <laughs> Her cat likes to play with these. They look like the tail end of the mouse. And so they're an adorable pattern. And we link to that from the show notes as well. And last item, Lucy Neatby has a new class over at Craftsy. And I got to have a sneak peek at it. And I don't know if you've ever seen Lucy teach on any of her teaching videos, but I can tell you this, aside from the fact that she has a fabulous accent, which is very easy on the ears, she also has a really wonderful visual style. She's somebody who's good at finding ways to explain things by using her hands and helping you see with something that's very simple and something that you can mimic, like your hands, um, helping you see really complicated things in knitting and kind of break it down so that it's actually not that complicated anymore because sometimes it's it's hard to see stitches and things like that when they're all tangled up together and she she just really demystifies the whole thing and does a nice job and it's another double knitting class you may recall a couple of years ago I did a scarf a finished scarf for 
the knitting scarves from around the world part of that series. There was knitting sweaters from around the world, knitting socks from around the world. Well, the scarf one, I did a double knit scarf. I wanted it to be reversible. And I was not the only one who did a double knit scarf. And at one point, the editor wrote back and she said, you know, it's interesting. Could you, could you fine tune this aspect of your instructions? And I said, sure. And she mentioned that there were other double knit scarves in the book. And I said, oh my gosh, do you want to, you know, unify the directions? Do you want to take out mine and replace them with other stuff? And she wrote back and said, no, you know, the thing that's really interesting is all of you explained it a little bit differently. And so we've decided to leave those instructions in because it gives readers more options. And I thought that's fabulous. And that's also one of the reasons why something like Craftsy is so useful because there's Alistair's class, there's Lucy's class. You can find someone who is going to speak to you the way that you need to be spoken to. And that I think is pretty good stuff. So keep an eye on uh, the Lucy Neeby class on Penny's cute little mouse butts and also on that Regency dress site. That designer, she's done, I followed some of the other links on that page. She's done some really cool stuff. So lots of fun stuff for you to have a look at and frolic with. A few listeners who were very quick of the ear last week emailed to say, you mentioned German you mentioned the German passage, but you didn't talk about it again. And there's a really good reason for that. It was that I didn't have the information for you yet. If you've been around since Dracula, you know that my brother-in-law is German. And I had to go to the source to find out what was going along with that particular passage that she quotes from. It's a passage from Schiller. It's from a play called De Raube, which is The Robbers. That was my, my pathetic German attempt to say the robbers. And um, I think it'll help a little bit if I read some of what my brother-in-law wrote to me. So, the, and, and you should know too that this play, uh, which was written in 1781, was very famous. So, it's not a surprise that Charlotte Bronte knows it, and it's not a surprise that the girls in the farmhouse were reading it as, as they're trying to learn German. And in fact, as a theater person, it makes a lot of sense to me that they're trying to learn German by reading a play, because that means they're reading dialogue, which is what you would need for, say, conversational German. So I kind of liked that little that little element of, of verisimilitude there. So uh, my brother-in-law wrote that the play is about two brothers. The good guy is the older son, Carl, who's very loved by his father and who is going to inherit everything by law. So Carl, good guy, much loved. The bad brother is Franz, who is jealous and he wants to get the inheritance for himself. So fairly standard issue starting point. Uh, Franz, bad brother, conceives a plot which leads to the father thinking that Carl, good brother, is dead when in fact he has survived and the way he survives after that point is by being a highwayman or a robber. So the scene quoted in Jane Eyre has the bad brother, Franz, talking to Daniel, who's the faithful servant of the house, about a dream that he's had. Now, being a dream, it is surreal, and, and it's uh, kind of revealing stuff that's going on inside Daniel. The dream includes a lot of doomsday imagery, and then 
a first person appears. He is a, as beautiful as a starry night. That's our first quotation that we get. It says, beautiful as a starry night, and his ring identifies him unmistakably. And that line in German, spoken by someone who speaks German, sounds like this. Da trat hervor einer, anzusehen wie die Sternennacht. And one of the things that I really love about German is that when you know what you're listening to, you can hear it. You can hear the Sternennacht, the starry night. I love that. So, so okay. Now, I need to drop in and say, in talking to my brother-in-law, Maurice, one of the things that he talked to me about was that uh, during Schiller's time, the theater would have been very big, very broad, very presentational. And that since then, kind of in the post-war world, uh, it's gotten really kind of pulled back. And I imagine Brecht had a lot to do with this, too, that you kind of, um, it's, it's more restrained, it's mm, less uh, romantic, actually. And so he, he actually recorded these lines uh, various different ways from, from very big, broad, and romantic to kind of pulling it back to almost a, a literal, almost legalese kind of sounding reading. And I, I picked some that are kind of in the middle so you can still hear some of the, the drama and the, the poetry in the lines. Um, but it, it may not be what you would hear on stage if you went to see uh, a Schiller play today. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Or a Schiller play in German, anyway, today. So to continue on with the dream. So then a second person shows up. And the second person uh, shows up in the dream with a miraculous mirror in which people can see only a snake, a tiger, or a leopard face. And then a third guy shows up. And he shows up with a scale. Ich wäge die Gedanken in der Schale meines Zornes und die Werke mit dem Gewichte meines Grimms. And roughly, the guy with the scales is saying, I weigh the thoughts in the bowl of my anger and the works with the weight of my fury. So there's a, a wrestling going on here, a wrestling between emotion and rationality, uh, a wrestling with choices, uh, a wrestling back and forth between anger and fury and thoughts versus work. And all of this stuff, and I thought, how perfect for Charlotte to have picked this passage. Uh, Maurice went on to say that this dream is obviously a thinly veiled allegory on the two brothers, where Franz is consciously or subconsciously confessing to the servant Daniel. We don't really know, because we haven't read this play. <laughs> But we do know this. The firstborn son inheriting everything is a major factor in the play. It is not Franz's fault that he is born ugly. That's the bad son. It's also not Carl's fault that Franz is envious in all of these things. And although they all try to change their fate, in the end, they are not successful. All of them die or suffer similar punishment, including, including the father. Now, Jane Eyre has some similar issues. She's not considered pretty. Neither is Rochester. Rochester younger son wasn't supposed to inherit anything. Jane, instead of being uh, jealous about her situation or angry about her situation, uh, she, she finds a way to grasp her own future and wrestle it out of the hands of fate. And that also links up interestingly to the Schiller play. So I thought that was pretty cool that, you know, Charlotte Bronte didn't pick that passage on accident, which I know. I mean, right, we knew that. 
because it's Charlotte Bronte. And at this point, we know she's not doing these things on accident, but it's kind of nice to find out where she was going. You know, that there's this, this wrestling with emotion versus reason. And, you know, what better way to put a punctuation mark on her reasoning behind leaving Thornfield and Rochester behind emotion versus reason. Mm-hmm. That was just perfect. So then I had one other thing to share with you before we get to today's chapter. And this is from an email that I received from one of our listeners, Laura. Laura wrote in to comment that I couldn't have posted this particular chapter, last week's chapter, at a better time than I did because last weekend was Easter. And she said, in the last chapter slash podcast you posted where Jane wandered the highways and byways of England and was finally admitted into St. John's house, a few points. The first is that I found listening to that chapter on Easter Saturday quite poignant, as the chapter depicts Jane's quote-unquote death and quote-unquote resurrection. Throughout the book, Jane has been crushed and squashed, but has always held on to her defiant self. This stage, this new chapter in her life, is different, though. She has finally, quote-unquote, died to self, as the Bible puts it. She, quite frankly, wants to stay and wants to open the door again to the pacing Rochester, but she knows she shouldn't. That this situation, as Charlotte writes so well, is what the rules were meant for. Jane leaves Rochester, her death, taking little, and what she takes, she loses as well. She's penniless, starving, sleeping in the open air. She has reached absolute bottom and expects a physical death. For three days she wanders in this state, echoing Christ three days in the grave, and on the third day, and Laura put a note, I believe it's three, right? She has given back her life. Everything she's had to this point is a gift, not of her own earning or control or conniving. Her home, her food, her job. Now even her name has changed. She is redeemed. She is resurrected. It's a new life. She goes on to say, one point of irony is that she is saved by Sinjin. Now, I'm going to edit this next section for some spoilers. Those of you who have already read Jane Eyre will see where Laura's going with this. Those of you who haven't read Jane Eyre before, I am not going to give anything away. Or at least not anything that you couldn't infer by the way that Sinjin spoke to Jane on the doorstep of his house. Laura goes on to say, it's ironic that she is saved by St. John. Sinjin. John in the Gospels is a man practically dripping with love. He is the one whom Jesus loved, that's in quotation marks, because he got Jesus and his mission and connected with Jesus on a different level because of it. He, after all, is the writer who gives us John, chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. The scripture emphasizes God's purpose in sending Jesus, but emphasizes it through the lens of love. Again, in John 4, 7 and 8, or chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he wrote, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love is such a central part to John the Apostle that he boils all of our actions and the worth of all of our actions down to it, and our very worth down to the point of whether do we love or not. Now, I'm going to cut Laura's commentary on Sinjin after this point, but 
I am very happy that I am able to leave you with this little snapshot of St. John from the Bible. Because as we move on through the next chapters, where St. John becomes a more and more important player, it's going to be really nice to have this in the back of your mind. And on that worthy note, we will pick up where we left off with Jane recuperating and recovering at a home on the moors where she needs to take some time to get to know the people who just saved her life. So here we go with chapter 29 of Jane Eyre. The recollection of about three days and nights succeeding this is very dim in my mind. I can recall some sensations felt in that interval, but few thoughts framed, and no actions performed. I knew I was in a small room and in a narrow bed. To that bed I seemed to have grown. I lay on it motionless as a stone, and to have torn me from it would have been almost to kill me. I took no note of the lapse of time, of the change from morning to noon, from noon to evening. I observed when anyone entered or left the apartment. I could even tell who they were. I could understand what was said when the speaker stood near to me, but I could not answer. To open my lips or move my limbs was equally impossible. Hannah, the servant, was my most frequent visitor. Her coming disturbed me. I had a feeling that she wished me away, that she did not understand me or my circumstances, that she was prejudiced against me. Diana and Mary appeared in the chamber once or twice a day. They would whisper sentences of this sort at my bedside. "'It is very well we took her in.' "'Yes, she would certainly have been found dead at the door in the morning had she been left out all night. I wonder what she has gone through. Strange hardships, I imagine. Poor, emaciated, pallid wanderer. She is not an uneducated person, I should think, by her manner of speaking. Her accent was quite pure, and the clothes she took off, though splashed and wet, were little worn and fine. She has a peculiar face, fleshless and haggard as it is. I rather like it, and when in good health and animated, I can fancy her physiognomy would be agreeable. Never once in their dialogues did I hear a syllable of regret at the hospitality they had extended to me, or of suspicion of, or aversion to, myself. I was comforted. Mr. St. John came but once. He looked at me and said my state of lethargy was the result of reaction from excessive and protracted fatigue. He pronounced it needless to send for a doctor. Nature, he was sure, would manage best, left to herself. He said every nerve had been overstrained in some way, and the whole system must sleep torpid a while. There was no disease. He imagined my recovery would be rapid enough when once commenced. These opinions he delivered in a few words, in a quiet, low voice, and added after a pause in the tone of a man little accustomed to expansive comment. Rather an unusual physiognomy, certainly not indicative of vulgarity or degradation. Far otherwise, responded Diana. To speak truth, St. John, my heart rather warms to the poor little soul. I wish we may be able to benefit her permanently. That is hardly likely, was the reply. You will find she is some young lady who has had a misunderstanding with her friends, and has probably injudiciously left them. We may perhaps succeed in restoring her to them, if she is not obstinate, but I trace lines of force in her face which make me sceptical of her tractability. He stood considering me some minutes, then added, She looks sensible, but not at all handsome. 
"'She is so ill, St. John.' "'Ill or well, she would always be plain. "'The grace and harmony of beauty are quite wanting in those features.' "'On the third day I was better. "'On the fourth I could speak, move, rise in bed, and turn. "'Hannah had brought me some gruel and dry toast, "'about, as I suppose, the dinner-hour. "'I had eaten with relish. "'The food was good, void of the feverish flavour "'which had hitherto poisoned what I had swallowed.' When she left me I felt comparatively strong and revived. Ere long satiety of repose and desire for action stirred me. I wished to rise, but what could I put on? Only my damp and bemired apparel, in which I had slept on the ground and fallen in the marsh. I felt ashamed to appear before my benefactors so clad. I was spared the humiliation. On a chair by the bedside were all my own things, clean and dry— my black silk frock hung against the wall. The traces of the bog were removed from it. The creases left by the wet smoothed out. It was quite decent. My very shoes and stockings were purified and rendered presentable. There were the means of washing in the room, and a comb and brush to smooth my hair. After a weary process, and resting every five minutes, I succeeded in dressing myself. My clothes hung loose on me, for I was much wasted— but I covered deficiencies with a shawl, and once more clean and respectable-looking, no speck of the dirt, no trace of the disorder I so hated, and which seemed so to degrade me, left. I crept down a stone staircase with the aid of the banisters, to a narrow low passage, and found my way presently to the kitchen. It was full of the fragrance of new bread and the warmth of a generous fire. Hannah was baking— Prejudices, it is well known, are most difficult to eradicate from the heart, whose soil has never been loosened or fertilised by education. They grow there, firm as weeds among stones. Hannah had been cold and stiff indeed at the first. Latterly she had begun to relent a little, and when she saw me come in tidy and well-dressed, she even smiled. "'What, you have got up?' she said. "'You are better then. You may sit you down on my chair on the hearthstone if you will.' She pointed to the rocking-chair. I took it. She bustled about, examining me every now and then with the corner of her eye. Turning to me as she took some loaves from the oven, she asked bluntly, "'Did you ever go a-begging afore you came here?' I was indignant for a moment, but remembering that anger was out of the question, and that I had indeed appeared as a beggar to her, I answered quietly, but still not without a certain marked firmness. "'You are mistaken in supposing me a beggar,' I am no beggar, any more than yourself or your young ladies. After a pause, she said, I do not understand that. You've like no house, nor no brass, I guess. The want of house or brass, by which I suppose you mean money, does not make a beggar in your sense of the word. Are you book-learned? she inquired presently. Yes, very. But you've never been to a boarding-school? I was at a boarding school eight years. She opened her eyes wide. Whatever cannot you keep yourself for, then? I have kept myself, and I trust shall keep myself again. What are you going to do with these gooseberries? I inquired as she brought out the basket of the fruit. Make them into pies? Give them to me and I'll pick them. Nay, I do not want you to do naught. "'But I must do something. Let me have them.' She consented, and she even brought me a clean towel to spread over my dress. 
Lest, as she said, I should mucky it. You've not been used to servant's work, I see by your hands, she remarked. Happen you've been a dressmaker? No, you are wrong. And now never mind what I have been. Don't trouble your head further about me, but tell me the name of the house where we are. Some calls it Marsh End, and some calls it Moor House. And the gentleman who lives here is called Mr. St. John. Nay, he doesn't live here, he's only staying a while. When he is at home, he's in his own parish at Morton. That village a few miles off. Aye. And what is he? He is a parson. I remembered the answer of the old housekeeper at the parsonage when I had asked to see the clergyman. This, then, was his father's residence. Aye, old Mr. Rivers lived here, and his father, and his grandfather, and great-grandfather afore him. The name, then, of that gentleman is Mr. St. John Rivers. Aye, St. John is like his Kirsten name. And his sisters are called Diana and Mary Rivers. Yes. Their father is dead. Dead three weeks and of a stroke. They have no mother. The mistress has been dead this money a year. Have you lived with the family long? I've lived here thirty year. I nursed them all three. That proves you must have been an honest and faithful servant. I will say so much for you, though you have had the incivility to call me a beggar. She again regarded me with a surprised stare. I believe, she said, I was quite mistaken in my thoughts o' you, but there are so many cheats goes about, you mun forgive me. And though, I continued rather severely, you wished to turn me from the door on a night when you should not have shut out a dog. Well, it was hard, but what can a body do? I thought more of the children nor myself. Poor things. They've like nobody to take care of them but me. I'm like to look sharpish. I maintained a grave silence for some minutes. You munnot think too hardly of me, she again remarked. But I do think hardly of you, I said, and I'll tell you why. Not so much because you refused to give me shelter or regarded me as an impostor, as because you just now made it a species of reproach that I had no brass and no house. Some of the best people that ever lived have been as destitute as I am, and if you are a Christian you ought not to consider poverty a crime. No more I ought, said she. Mr. St. John tells me so too, and I see I were wrong, but I've a clear different notion on you now to what I had. You look a right down decent little crater. That will do. I forgive you now. Shake hands. She put her flowery and horny hand into mine. Another and heartier smile illumined her rough face, and from that moment we were friends. Hannah was evidently fond of talking. While I picked the fruit, and she made the paste for the pies, she proceeded to give me sundry details about her deceased master and mistress, and the childer, as she called the young people. Old Mr. Rivers, she said, was a plain enough man, but a gentleman, and of as ancient a family as could be found. Marsh End had belonged to the Rivers ever since it was a house, and it was, she affirmed, a bone two hundred year old, for all it looked but a small, humble place, not to compare with Mr. Oliver's grand hall down in Morton Vale. But she could remember Bill Oliver's father, a journeyman needlemaker, and the Rivers were gentry the old days of the Henrys, as anybody might see by looking into the registers in Morton Church vestry. Still, she allowed, the old maester was like other folk, not mick of the common way, 
stark mad as shooting and farming and such like. The mistress was different. She was a great reader and studied a deal, and the bairns had taken after her. There was nothing like them in these parts, nor never had been. They had liked learning all three, almost from the time they could speak, and they had always been of a make of their own. Mr. St. John, when he grew up, would go to college and be a parson, and the girls, as soon as they left school, would seek places as governesses, for they had told her their father had some years ago lost a great deal of money by a man he had trusted turning bankrupt, and as he was now not rich enough to give them fortunes, they must provide for themselves. They had lived very little at home for a long while, and were only come now to stay a few weeks on account of their father's death. But they did so like Marsh and Morton, and all these moors and hills about. They had been in London and many other grand towns, but they always said there was no place like home, and then they were so agreeable with each other, never fell out nor threeped. She did not know where there was such a family for being united. Having finished my task of gooseberry picking, I asked where the two ladies and their brother were now. Gone over to Morton for a walk, but they would be back in half an hour to tea. They returned within the time Hannah had allotted them. They entered by the kitchen door. Mr. St. John, when he saw me, merely bowed and passed through. The two ladies stopped. Mary, in a few words, kindly and calmly expressed the pleasure she felt in seeing me well enough to be able to come down. Diana took my hand. She shook her head at me. "'You should have waited for my leave to descend,' she said. "'You still look very pale and so thin. Poor child!' "'Poor girl!' Diana had a voice toned to my ear like the cooing of a dove. She possessed eyes whose gaze I delighted to encounter. Her whole face seemed to me full of charm. Mary's countenance was equally intelligent, her features equally pretty, but her expression was more reserved, and her manners, though gentle, more distant. Diana looked and spoke with a certain authority. She had a will, evidently.' It was my nature to feel pleasure in yielding to an authority supported like hers, and to bend, where my conscience and self-respect permitted, to an active will. "'And what business have you here?' she continued. "'It is not your place. Mary and I sit in the kitchen sometimes, because at home we like to be free, even to license. But you are a visitor, and must go into the parlour. "'I am very well here.' "'Not at all, with Hannah bustling about and covering you with flour. "'Besides, the fire is too hot for you,' interposed Mary. "'To be sure,' added her sister. "'Come, you must be obedient.' "'And still holding my hand, she made me rise, and led me into the inner room. "'Sit there,' she said, placing me on the sofa, "'while we take our things off and get the tea ready.' It is another privilege we exercise in our little moorland home, to prepare our own meals when we are so inclined, or when Hannah is baking, brewing, washing, or ironing. She closed the door, leaving me solace of Mr. St. John, who sat opposite a book or newspaper in his hand. I examined first the parlour, and then its occupant. The parlour was rather a small room, very plainly furnished, yet comfortable because clean and neat, the old-fashioned chairs were very bright, and the walnut-wood table was like a looking-glass. A few strange antique portraits of the men and women of other days decorated the stained walls. A cupboard with glass doors contained some books and an ancient set of china. There was no superfluous ornament in the room. 
not one modern piece of furniture, save a brace of work-boxes and a lady's desk in rosewood, which stood on a side-table. Everything, including the carpet and curtains, looked at once well-worn and well-saved. Mr. St. John, sitting as still as one of the dusty pictures on the walls, keeping his eyes fixed on the page he perused and his lips mutely sealed, was easy enough to examine. Had he been a statue instead of a man, he could not have been any easier. He was young, perhaps from twenty-eight to thirty, tall, slender. His face riveted the eye. It was like a Greek face, very pure in outline, quite a straight, classic nose, quite an Athenian mouth and chin. It is seldom indeed an English face comes so near the antique models as did his. He might well be a little shocked at the irregularity of my lineaments, his own being so harmonious. His eyes were large and blue, with brown lashes. His high forehead, colourless as ivory, was partially streaked over by careless locks of fair hair. This is a gentle delineation, is it not, reader? Yet he whom it describes scarcely impressed one with the idea of a gentle, a yielding, an impressible, or even of a placid nature. Quiescent as he now sat, there was something about his nostril, his mouth, his brow, which to my perceptions indicated elements within either restless, or hard, or eager. He did not speak to me one word, nor even direct to me one glance, till his sisters returned. Diana, as she passed in and out in the course of preparing tea, brought me a little cake, baked on the top of the oven. "'Eat that now,' she said. "'You must be hungry. Hannah says you have had nothing but some gruel since breakfast.' I did not refuse it, for my appetite was awakened and keen. Mr. Rivers now closed his book, approached the table, and as he took a seat, fixed his blue, pictorial-looking eyes full on me. There was an unceremonious directness, a searching, decided steadfastness in his gaze now, which told that intention, and not diffidence, had hitherto kept it averted from the stranger. "'You are very hungry,' he said. "'I am, sir.' It is my way, it always was my way by instinct, ever to meet the brief with brevity, the direct with plainness. It is well for you that a low fever has forced you to abstain for the last three days. There would have been danger in yielding to the cravings of your appetite at first. Now you may eat, though still not immoderately. I trust I shall not eat long at your expense, sir, was my very clumsily contrived, unpolished answer. "'No,' he said coolly. "'When you have indicated to us the residence of your friends, we can write to them, and you may be restored to home.' "'That, I must plainly tell you, is out of my power to do, being absolutely without home and friends.' The three looked at me, but not distrustfully. I felt there was no suspicion in their glances. There was more of curiosity. I speak particularly of the young ladies— Sinjin's eyes, though clear enough in a literal sense, in a figurative one, were difficult to fathom. He seemed to use them rather as instruments to search other people's thoughts than as agents to reveal his own. The which combination of keenness and reserve was considerably more calculated to embarrass than to encourage. "'Do you mean to say,' he asked, "'that you are completely isolated from every connection?' "'I do. Not a tie links me to any living thing,' Not a claim do I possess to admittance under any roof in England. A most singular position at your age. 
Here I saw his glance directed to my hands, which were folded on the table before me. I wondered what he sought there. His words soon explained the quest. "'You have never been married. You are a spinster.' Diana laughed. "'Why, she can't be above seventeen or eighteen years old, St. John,' said she. "'I am near nineteen, but I am not married. No.' I felt a burning glow mount to my face, for bitter and agitating recollections were awakened by the allusion to marriage. They all saw the embarrassment and the emotion. Diana and Mary relieved me by turning their eyes elsewhere than to my crimson visage, but the colder and sterner brother continued to gaze, till the trouble he had excited forced out tears as well as colour. "'Where did you last reside?' he now asked. "'You are too inquisitive, St. John.' murmured Mary in a low voice, but he leaned over the table and required an answer by a second firm and piercing look. The name of the place where, and of the person with whom I lived, is my secret, I replied concisely. Which, if you like, you have, in my opinion, a right to keep, both from St. John and from every other questioner, remarked Diana. Yet, if I know nothing about you or your history, I cannot help you, he said. "'And you need help, do you not?' "'I need it, and I seek it so far, sir, "'that some true philanthropist will put me in the way of getting work which I can do, "'and the remuneration for which will keep me, "'if but in the barest necessities of life. "'I know not whether I am a true philanthropist, "'yet I am willing to aid you to the utmost of my power in a purpose so honest. First, then, tell me what you have been accustomed to do, and what you can do.' I had now swallowed my tea. I was mightily refreshed by the beverage, as much so as a giant with wine. It gave new tone to my unstrung nerves, and enabled me to address this penetrating young judge steadily. "'Mr. Rivers,' I said, turning to him and looking at him as he looked at me, openly and without diffidence, "'you and your sisters have done me a great service. The greatest man can do his fellow-being.' You have rescued me, by your noble hospitality, from death. This benefit conferred gives you an unlimited claim on my gratitude, and a claim to a certain extent on my confidence. I will tell you as much of the history of the wanderer you have harboured, as I can tell without compromising my own peace of mind, my own security, moral and physical, and that of others. I am an orphan, the daughter of a clergyman. My parents died before I could know them— I was brought up a dependent, educated in a charitable institution. I will even tell you the name of the establishment, where I passed six years as a pupil and two as a teacher, Lowood Orphan Asylum, Blankshire. You will have heard of it, Mr. Rivers, the Reverend Robert Brocklehurst as the treasurer. I have heard of Mr. Brocklehurst, and I have seen the school. I left Lowood nearly a year since to become a private governess, I obtained a good situation, and was happy. This place I was obliged to leave four days before I came here. The reason of my departure I cannot and ought not to explain. It would be useless, dangerous, and would sound incredible. No blame attached to me. I am as free from culpability as any one of you three. Miserable I am, and must be for a time, for the catastrophe which drove me from a house I had found a paradise was of a strange and direful nature— I observed but two points in planning my departure—speed, secrecy. 
To secure these I had to leave behind me everything I possessed except a small parcel, which in my hurry and trouble of mind I forgot to take out of the coach that brought me to Whitcross. To this neighbourhood, then, I came, quite destitute. I slept two nights in the open air, and wandered about two days without crossing a threshold. But twice in that space of time did I taste food, and it was when brought by hunger, exhaustion, and despair almost to the last gasp, that you, Mr. Rivers, forbade me to perish of want at your door, and took me under the shelter of your roof. I know all your sisters have done for me since, for I have not been insensible during my seeming torpor, and I owe to their spontaneous, genuine, genial compassion as large a debt as to your evangelical charity. "'Don't make her talk any more now, St. John,' said Diana, as I paused. "'She is evidently not yet fit for excitement. Come to the sofa and sit down now, Miss Elliot.' I gave an involuntary half-start at hearing the alias. I had forgotten my new name. Mr. Rivers, whom nothing seemed to escape, noticed it at once. "'You said your name was Jane Elliot,' he observed. "'I did say so, and it is the name by which I think it expedient to be called at present. But it is not my real name, and when I hear it, it sounds strange to me.' "'Your real name you will not give?' "'No. I fear discovery above all things, and whatever disclosure would lead to it, I avoid.' "'You are quite right, I am sure,' said Diana. "'Now do, brother, let her be at peace a while.' But when St. John had mused a few moments, he recommenced as imperturbably and with as much acumen as ever. "'You would not like to be long dependent on our hospitality. You would wish I see to dispense as soon as may be with my sister's compassion, and above all with my charity. I am quite sensible of the distinction drawn, nor do I resent it. It is just. You desire to be independent of us.' "'I do. I have already said so. Show me how to work, or how to seek work. That is all I now ask. Then let me go, if to be but to the meanest cottage. But till then allow me to stay here. I dread another essay of the horrors of homeless destitution.' "'Indeed, you shall stay here,' said Diana, putting her white hand on my head. "'You shall,' repeated Mary, in the tone of undemonstrative sincerity which seemed natural to her. "'My sisters, you see, have a pleasure in keeping you,' said Mr. St. John, "'as they would have a pleasure in keeping and cherishing a half-frozen bird "'some wintry wind might have driven through their casement. "'I feel more inclination to put you in the way of keeping yourself, "'and shall endeavour to do so. "'But observe, my sphere is narrow. "'I am but the incumbent of a poor county parish. "'My aid must be of the humblest sort.' "'And if you are inclined to despise the day of small things, "'seek some more efficient succour than such as I can offer.' "'She has already said that she is willing to do anything honest she can do,' "'answered Diana for me. "'And you know, St. John, she has no choice of helpers. "'She is forced to put up with such crusty people as you.' "'I will be a dressmaker. "'I will be a plain workwoman. "'I will be a servant, a nurse-girl, if I can be no better,' I answered.' "'Right,' said Mr. St. John, quite coolly. "'If such is your spirit, I promise to aid you in my own time and way.' He now resumed the book with which he had been occupied before tea. I soon withdrew, for I had talked as much and sat up as long as my present strength would permit. "'Well, he ain't no Rochester, that's what I'm saying. "'He might grow on me. 
I haven't decided yet. But I like the girls. I like Hannah. And I dig Jane. Tough cookie. Man, that scene with her and Hannah in the beginning where she's like, no, I don't forgive you. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. You crossed a line, woman. I was really, really surprised. Um, And I I think, I, I don't remember being as surprised when I read the story on paper, but listening to it in my ear, there's something so affronting about hearing someone say, no, you crossed a line. Really, that was not okay. When they're in a situation where you think that they should probably be all sweetness and light since people just saved her life. Uh, Fascinating. I love, I love that. And I think that that's, um, in some ways, that's a particularly Charlotte moment. Again, we have these Charlotte moments all the way through the book. That, that kind, that kind of prickliness is the kind of prickly that I see Charlotte having exhibited in my mind's eye, having read the huge biography and, and everything that it's, um, it's fascinating. Fascinating to watch people from other times who are behaving in ways that, that don't seem to fit that time. She seems to be very modern in this chapter, and I love that. So, have a great week. I will be bringing you new news and all sorts of good things next week. And you may have noticed that we're at episode 297. We will soon be at episode 300. Now, for the Just the Books listeners, that's really episode 300 of Craftlet. Although we have fixed the Just the Books feed, and so in your iTunes feed, you should now see uh, almost 50 episodes from the beginning of the podcast from back in 2006 that we've been uploading, and uh, and I'm going to keep uploading more. Take some time. But for, for the Craftlet listeners, uh, the very first episode, episode one was the last week of April, 2006. And this year, episode 300, is going to be the last week of April, 2013. I'm awful proud of that, and I'm really excited that you're taking this journey with me through all of these fantastic books. It's good fun, good stuff. Have a good week. I'll talk to you soon. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. Just the Books and Craftlet are produced by Penny Shima Glantz and Elizabeth Green Musselman and Heather Ordover. And remember,